It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Pastor Jeff mentioned last week that we're going to be taking uh, a brief trip out of Colossians 3 this week. Uh, He'll return to Colossians 3 next week one more time. And then beginning in March, we're going to be starting a series in 1 Peter, which I'm looking forward to. But today we're going to be looking at a psalm together, Psalm 99. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there to Psalm 99. This psalm is a part of a grouping of psalms. It was used for corporate worship settings. And um, I think it seems appropriate that we get a chance to do that here today, many thousands of years after the psalm was used and written uh, by our brothers and sisters. We get to do it today by worshiping the same God. So I'm going to read Psalm 99. I should read with me. The Lord reigns, but the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubims, but the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, I imagine there's a number of things that have stuck with you from that trip. I was probably somewhere around eight or nine years old when I went to Niagara Falls for the first time, and I remember a number of things about it. But one of the things that comes to mind almost immediately are the stories that you hear of the people who go over the falls, many of them intentionally. There's a story of one such man named Roger Woodward, you may know his name, Uh, He is one of the people that have gone over the falls and survived it, but his story is unique because Roger Woodward did not do it intentionally. He was a seven-year-old kid who had just fallen out of the boat a little ways upstream, and he went over the falls with no protection and survived the impact. Other things you probably remember if you've been to Niagara Falls are the physical sensory experience of the falls themselves. As you approach them, you can kind of feel the water, the thunder of the water in your body. There's mist everywhere that you can smell and feel all over, this, all over the place. And as you sense that thunder of the water going down, it's what makes Roger's story particularly amazing because that water is enormously powerful and dangerous. So it is somewhat of a miracle that Roger survived that drop. And he explains the only way he survived, he believes, was God's gracious hand protecting him as he fell. Now there's a sense of, in this psalm that we just read, Psalm 99, of the power and the majesty and wonder of the Lord that I think is difficult to capture. But a waterfall like Niagara Falls, with all of its danger and majesty, can in some ways help us begin to grasp a little bit of that sense. 
And the psalmist of this psalm wants to usher us into worship as we get a glimpse of the character of the Lord. So that's our main point this morning. But the character of the Lord draws us into the worship of the Lord. And we're going to see how the psalmist does that in three different ways by telling us that we worship the Lord for three reasons according to this psalm. We worship the Lord because of his reign. We worship the Lord because of his justice. And we worship the Lord because of his mercy. The Lord reigns, the Lord is just, and the Lord is merciful. And it's my hope that the Lord would grant us a glimpse of himself today. And that glimpse would help us join the psalmist in exalting the Lord our God. So let's take a look at the first point. We worship because the Lord reigns. So if you look again with me at verse 1, if you have your Bible, read with me. The Lord reigns, but the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, but the earth quake. Now the psalmist begins this psalm by immediately drawing our attention to the Lord, and, and specifically he's drawing our attention to the reign of the Lord, the Lord's reign. And you probably sense that there's this, or saw, there's almost this dual call and response in verse 1. Uh, as the peoples and the earth react to the Lord, they both react the same way. The Lord reigns and the people tremble. The Lord is enthroned upon the cherubim and the earth quakes. I want to take a brief moment to talk about that word reign. When the psalmist says the Lord reigns, it's referring there to the absolute authority that the Lord has over all parts of creation. There is nothing that happens that the Lord does not allow. Now, as Westerners, we have a very highly refined and cultivated sense um, of suspicion towards authority. And if you're an American, you have an especially high suspicion towards someone who calls themselves king. A reigning king is not a concept we come to with a good framework for how to understand the idea of a good, authoritative, reigning king. But there are major differences between how worldly kings act and how the Lord acts. Primarily, the Lord uses his authority for good, and that authority extends over every single thing. His power isn't abused, and it's not limited. There's not a single frog, croak, or world war that takes place outside the Lord's authority. And we have all sorts of fictional stories that we have heard or read or seen that imagine what it would be like if some person or committee or group was actually running everything in our lives that we didn't realize. Which seems to me to be a reflex of people who don't know the Lord, this idea that surely someone must be in charge of all these things. And if the story is a serious one, very consistently, when the character meets the group or person that is actually running everything in their lives, it is a very frightening moment. Because they realize in that moment that that person has control over whether they continue to exist. And if it's a story that was written in the West, then most likely that character overthrows the evil authority and rides off into freedom sunset. <laughs> we don't have good frameworks for understanding the Lord's reign. But it is a fearful thing to realize that you might not be in control of your life. And the psalmist picks up on that. When confronted with the reign of the Lord, the people tremble and the earth quakes. Now, the book of Exodus recounts a similar story to this, or it is a story that likely the psalm is based off of. Um, after the Israelites have left Egypt, the Lord God leads them to the base of Mount Sinai. 
And at that mountain, Exodus 19.16 records what happens next. It says this, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. A few verses later, when the Lord descends on the mountain, it says that the mountain itself trembled greatly. So you see what happens here. When the people that the Lord has made and God's creation senses the Creator's presence, the people tremble and the earth quakes. Now, if you're, uh, if you're part of our Men's or Women's Bible study, we're going through the book of Habakkuk. It's a very similar story that takes place in chapter 3. When confronted with the Lord, it says that the mountains themselves writhe. Habakkuk says that he trembled and that his bones were turned to rottenness. Trembling, quaking. Now, if you've ever experienced unwanted trembling of your body, uh, you know that it typically comes in moments of very high anxiety, stress. Apparently, there's a part of your brain that can sense when you're in danger, and it shoots adrenaline to all of your muscles, and that's what causes the trembling. It's the first step of the fight-or-flight response. And the psalmist knows that when the people behold the Lord in all of his majesty and his holiness and his power, they will tremble because they know that they are in the most dangerous presence that exists. That that presence will decide if they live or die. He is in complete control. And the psalmist goes on to describe the cherubim that are carrying the Lord's throne. These are not chubby babies with wings. These are enormous, powerful beings that would terrify us if we were to meet them in person. Ezekiel tries to capture this vision in Ezekiel 1 when he writes what it was like seeing the glory of the Lord, the throne of God, as it moves around. He describes these frightening angelic beings carrying the throne with wings and four faces. They shine like bronze and fire. They move as fast as lightning. And the Lord's throne itself is set on this enormous crystal expanse. There's cracks of thunder and roars like a waterfall all around. And that's just the throne. God's glory itself becomes too difficult to capture. You can only describe it with similes that mention light and shining and rainbows. And when Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord, he falls on his face in fear and worship. And if you saw back in verse 3 of Psalm 99, you can notice that how the psalmist reacts with the vision of the glory of the Lord. Let the people who are just trembling now praise your great and awesome name. So the psalmist is going to move from fear to worship. Now these two responses may seem counter to one another, fear and worship, but they are two responses that Scripture often holds together. Um, John Murray writes that godly fear and worship of the Lord are the reflexes of our consciousness when we encounter the majesty and holiness of the living God, which I think is helpful. These are the reflexes of our minds when we see God's holiness. Our responses to God grow out of our vision of who God is. And the vision the psalmist gives us is this majestic throne of the Lord. Now the psalmist ends this section by saying, and these next three sections, by declaring that the Lord is holy, which means the Lord is utterly separate and different than anything else that we experience on earth. We are uh, used to praising things that are unique or special, and this is the same idea but magnified many, many times over. Worshiping God for his holiness is worshiping, worshiping him for his unique 
amazing majesty specials. After this first exclamation of God's holiness, the psalmist is going to move on to the next reason we worship the Lord, which is our second point. We worship because the Lord is just. So read again with verse, verse 4 with me. Psalm 99.4. The Lord in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So the psalm has moved from broadly praising the Lord for his reign now to more specifically praising the Lord for his character. We're getting more specific. We praise God because he is just. He establishes equity and justice. Now, given the culture we live in, there's a lot of definitions of justice and equity. And we have a lot of ideas about what those words mean. So I want to start with just a brief definition of what those words mean from a biblical perspective. Um, Tim Keller writes really helpfully on this subject. If you want some resources on how to think about biblical justice and equity, I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, but he writes helpfully that true biblical justice is meant to be or is a reflection of God's character. If we want to see true justice, we need to look at how the Lord describes himself, how he instructs his people to live, and also how Jesus himself lived while he was on earth. And theologians for many, many years have recognized that God's justice has two different aspects to it. There's a retributive side to it and a restorative side, which means God's justice includes wrongdoers being punished for their wrongdoing and those who have had wrong done to them being restored because of that. And I find that to be really helpful. And it ties in, I think, very closely with this biblical idea of equity as well. Alex Matier explains two concepts, justice and equity, are very closely linked especially in the Old Testament, the entire judicial system was built on a principle of absolute equity, which means no one gets an unfair advantage. No one is unfairly advantaged, and no one is unfairly disadvantaged. It's the first part of the meaning of biblical equity. But the second part also is that there has to be perfect equivalence between a crime and its punishment. And there are no exceptions for this. Every sin requires appropriate punishment for it. And there are no exceptions. Every sin, large or small, must be punished. Now, this is another area where we see God's holiness or how different he is than we are. The king is holy because of his majesty, and he is holy because he truly loves justice. A true love for justice requires it requires a desire for judgment for all sin and equity by Scripture's definition. And in talking about matters of justice and injustice, it's easier or easy for us to point fingers. The desire of justice and judgment be given to someone who's either hurt us or hurt somebody else. And that is not necessarily a wrong desire, as long as it is done out of a desire for true justice and restoration, and not to smash somebody. But true, fully equitable justice means that every person, regardless of what has ever happened to them, will be subject to judgment for every sin, large or small. And that is a thought that can cause us to tremble. Because the better we know our hearts, the more frightening the thought of equitable justice and judgment is. But the psalmist says there's one other thing the Lord executes in Jacob, or among his people. You can see it there in verse 4. The Lord executes justice and he executes righteousness in Jacob. 
And based on what we just said, that should trick our ears a little bit. Because this, we know that the people of Israel, or Jacob, as the psalmist is calling them, were not a just group of people. They were not righteous. Regardless of whether this was before, during, or after the exile, Israel had some pretty ugly stains on its history. They ranged from trying to manipulate God by using holy items in war to sacrificing people to false gods, children. Israel was not a just nation, and they were not righteous on their own merit. So if we look at verse 4, it should make us ask the question, how is it that the psalmist can say that the Lord has executed justice and executed righteousness in the land of Israel? I'll lead us to our last point. We worship because the Lord is merciful. So look with me again at verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read these one more time. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship in his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. So we've moved in this psalm from broad praise to the Lord for his reign to more specific praise to the Lord for his character. And now we move to three testimonials. Three testimonials of God's mercy in the lives of three important figures in Israel's history. Three people who called on the name of the Lord for salvation. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were all important people in the history of Israel. And each of them had really, really important moments where they interceded for Israel, on behalf of Israel, uh, before the Lord. If you take a look down at verse 8, there's something else that these men had in common as well. They interceded for the Lord, but they also themselves each sinned against the Lord. You see that there. It says the Lord answered them, he forgave them, and he avenged their wrongdoing. Now, obviously, these men would not need forgiveness had they not sinned against the Lord. And I think this brings the tension of verse 4 into focus here. How does God avenge the wrongdoing and forgive these men? If you think about each of their stories, Aaron literally led the entire nation of Israel into sin by encouraging them to worship a golden calf. He did it as because he was a coward. He was afraid of what the people would do. Moses let his authority go to his head, and he struck a rock to try to take the credit for himself and let the people know, I'm actually the one that's giving you this water. Take some of the credit from God. And Samuel, it seems, cared more about ministering to God's people than he did ministering to his own family. And so it's a good question that we need to ask here. How is it that God can forgive and avenge the wrongdoings of an absent father, a man who let the power that he had go to his head, a coward who shirked his job to keep the people happy with him? I think there's actually two problems we need to deal with here. One, that there's an individual problem, and there's a corporate problem. Here's the individual problem. How can God be both truly just and truly merciful to these individuals, but also to us too. If the Lord's equitable justice requires 
judgment for every single one of our sins, but mercy means that God spares full judgment. How can anyone receive mercy without God compromising his character? And here's the corporate problem. The people of Israel, God's people, needed a better intercessor. All throughout its history, Israel needed people to go before the Lord and pray for them on their behalf because they continued to sin against the Lord. They needed this because of what the psalm says about the Lord. He executes justice. But Israel was not a just nation. They deserved judgment. The problem was each of these men deserved judgment too. So they needed an an intercessor as well. Each of them carried sin with them before God. So everyone in this situation was in trouble. So we see these two very competing ideas running throughout the Old Testament. I once heard D.A. Carson say it was like these, you hear the rumble of these two trains. God is just and God is merciful, roaring all throughout the Old Testament. They get louder and louder and louder and louder. Until finally they crash together at the cross. No one would understand how God could resolve these things until Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. How is it that God is just? The judgment that his people deserved was placed onto Jesus. And how is it that God is merciful? Because Jesus has given us his righteousness in exchange for our judgment. In Christ, the justice of God is fully satisfied mercy of God is given to all who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. So this solves both of the major problems for God's people. It solves the individual problem because Jesus has taken the judgment. It solves the corporate problem because right now Jesus is seated before the Father and he is making intercession for his people before the Lord. And he doesn't bring any sin with him. He doesn't die. And he will never stop interceding for you, praying on your behalf before the Father. So you can kind of sense, I think, in Psalm 99, the wonder that the psalmist is sensing as he holds both these ideas together. God avenges wrongdoing, and yet God forgives. And so the psalm ends with this exclamation, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. I want to take a moment and talk about how we might try to put these ideas into practice, what it means for us us today to worship at the Lord's holy mountain, and how we can use this psalm to help produce worship in our hearts and shape that worship as well. Now briefly, biblical worship, I think when we think of the word worship, often what comes to mind is singing, is certainly part of it, but biblical worship is more than that. Biblical worship is responding to who the Lord is, and what the Lord has done by giving the Lord what he deserves. Say that one more time. Biblical worship is responding to who the Lord is and what the Lord has done by giving the Lord what he deserves. And that includes a lot of things. Romans 12 tells us that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices as an act of worship to God. So that means that pretty much everything that we do, think, or say can in some way act as an act of worship before God. So verbal praise, singing, sacrificing our time, our talents, sacrificing our money, sacrifices in how we talk and how we live and how we work, 
All of these things are ways in which we as God's people worship him. Earlier we saw the pattern that I mentioned in this psalm, how it works its way from broad praise of the Lord's reign down to more specific praise for particular aspects of the Lord's character. And finally, very specific praise for how the Lord has shown mercy to three people. It's an important pattern for us to notice, especially as we consider what it means to worship the Lord in a way that pleases him. We have to recognize the Lord's nature and character and recognize what the Lord has done for us. So I want to talk about each of those two ideas briefly. Worshiping because of who the Lord is and worshiping because of what the Lord has done. Why both of those things are important. It's easy to fall into uh, a pattern, I suppose, of ascribing praise and worth and acknowledgement to God based solely on what God does for us or what Jesus has done for us what we see God doing in our lives recently, or something along those lines. I think that can come out when someone maybe asks you why you go to church, and you're right. good response would be, because Jesus died for me. It's a good response. It's a normal one. You might consider your pursuit of purity as a result, a primarily response to what Jesus has done for you, because Jesus died for you. Or you're giving as a sacrifice back to Jesus because Jesus sacrificed for you. And, and please hear me, that's not wrong. <laughs> that is a good and right response. But I think that's only part of the story of why we worship the Lord. If our worship of the Lord is based only on what the Lord has done for us, or what he's doing for us, then we are in danger of our worship becoming primarily about us. And if that is the case, over time, our view of God will evolve to be as large as our needs. But on the other hand, if we use the pattern that the psalm provides, and we rehearse and remember what the Lord is like, what he has shown us about himself, then it undercuts that danger by exploding our view of the Lord. I once heard Bev Bullmore say that she spent a year reading through the Bible and highlighting and writing down everything she learned about the nature and character of God, not just what he, is, he had done for her. And that year was incredibly impactful year for her studying scripture. I think that's helpful. We worship God not just because of what he's done for us. That's important. We also worship him because he rightfully deserves our praise because of who he is and what he is like. Now, on the flip side, it's also critical that we recount and remember what Jesus has done for us and what God has done for his people in our worship. In verse 9, the psalmist ends by encouraging us to worship at the Lord's holy mountain, which is Mount Sinai. That's where God gave the Israelites the law after he rescued them from the land of Egypt. And at the time that this psalm was written, the Exodus was the most important act of redemption that God had done for his people up to that time. And the psalmist is calling people's minds back to the moment when God saved them from their slavery. For us today, the main act of redemption that we look back on is the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God rescued us from our slavery to sin at great cost to himself. I think the danger of losing sight of what God has done for us in our worship is that our worship can become distant and perfunctory. We're simply paying the king his dues without any true affection. 
But our king not only rightly deserves our worship because of who he is, but he has paid a great, great price to rescue us so that we can worship him. Fully formed worship looks at both who God is and what he has done for us. And so we today might look at verse 9 and say, For us, we exalt the Lord our God, and we worship at the foot of the cross. For the Lord our God is holy. Thinking back to Roger Woodward and his story of going over Niagara Falls, his experience of the falls and my experience of the falls are obviously very, very different. Although we were still in the same presence, the same dangerous part of God's creation. But I wasn't afraid. I instead was struck with awe and with wonder at this waterfall. Because when we are in the presence of something majestic and dangerous, but when we, when we know that we are not in danger, what was, become, what was fear becomes awe and reverence and wonder. And in the case of the Lord, it becomes worship. And that is what Christ has made possible for each of us. He's taken us from the dangerous water, God's justice, and he has placed us on the railing. And so we too can join the psalmist in worshiping the Lord our God.